Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I take no greater joy than standing at the back of the theater or in the wings, which I try and do at least once or twice a week, just watching the reaction of that audience to what's on stage. That is Michael Castle, and this is episode 227 of the Oshie Ginsberg Podcast. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is my show. Um, uh, if this is your first time listening, hi. Sometimes I'm on the telly counting roses. At the moment, I'm driving around every now and then in Sydney, at least, on the side of buses, which is a strange feeling when you pull up next to yourself in a bus, looking down at yourself, driving in your car, looking back at yourself. Interesting. Um, but each week here on this podcast, for the last 226 weeks in a row, in fact, I like to have an authentic conversation that you get to be a part of with someone that you may know or someone that you may not know. But each week, I guarantee that you will just go, all right, I never thought about that before. Having a little paradigm shift, a little think of a little chance to think about something a little differently in life. That's what this show is about. My guest today is Michael Castle. He's a theatre producer, a very successful Australian theatre producer. You can find him on Twitter and what he's doing on Twitter at Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Castle, C-A-S-S-E-L. More about Michael in a moment. Big thanks to everyone that sent an email this week. Super great to uh, hear from people who um, who have, you know, started to check in with the people around them because it's important to check in. I do talk about this at this show. Uh, to check in is just to go, hey, how you going? Oh, that's me dropping my phone. Um, uh, to check in is to go, hey, how you going? Yeah, how you going? Yeah, well, I'm having a bit of a struggling time this week and actually being honest about it. You know, you're not trying to burden someone asking them for a solution. You just want to, like, share what you have to say and then someone, hopefully, if someone's checking in with you, they'll go, oh, okay, well, if, like, if I can help, let me know, but I hear you and yeah, I get that that sucks So, or I get that that's great. 
So, you know, just sharing what we're going through each week. So, yeah, thanks very much for sending me emails. Send Osher email at gmail.com uh, to check in with you. Uh, it's been a busy week. I'm recording this on my phone. I'm sitting in a hotel room and I'm about 20 minutes away from having to be in a lobby um, to go and do some work in Melbourne. There's a, a race car thing happening today, the Formula One, and I'm doing some work there. So I've got to scoot out. My wife is uh, in the bathroom getting ready. Uh, it's a Sunday morning. We're making it happen. We're going to put suits on. Well, I'm going to put a suit on. Actually, she's putting a suit on too because I just helped her steam it. So, oh, I just look at it now. I'm going to have to get rid of that crease before I get going. I'm going to turn the iron back on. Hang on, let me just turn this iron back on. Okay, there we go. Iron will warm up while we get going. Okay, so, but yes, been a bit of a busy week. Um, trying to utilize as many tools as I can to to make the days a bit better. Uh, there was a few years ago where I learned what CBT was or cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, just this week, I started to, I guess, get back into that in a bit more, more of an intense fashion, just making it a part of my morning, doing my columns, my CBT columns in the morning, um, and just kind of figuring out whatever's going on, whatever distortions are going on, trying to rationalize things. And it's actually, I can do it now. There was a time when I couldn't do it, where a time when my brain wouldn't work enough to allow that sort of stuff to happen. But it's starting, you know, it's, like, it's a little easier now, um, which is good because my brain's a little healthier, so that sort of stuff works. It, but it does work slowly. That's the thing that does frustrate, I guess. It, it works slowly to make things better. Uh, I guess it's a, very much like Elise was talking last week, Dr. Elise Bailey, who was on last week talking about mindfulness meditation. You can't, you can't expect to do one set of crunches and then see a six-pack when you look in the mirror. You just have to do it every single day and trust that over time the changes will come. And so, look, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. And it's okay. It's okay. Exciting time at the moment here uh, for us. Um, we're, we're shooting a new season of The Bachelor, uh, which is uh, which is good. But it means a lot of overnight shooting, so there's a lot of Barocca in my life. And um, Bachelor in Paradise, the new Bachelor show's on. So it started uh, by the time you hear this, it would have started last night, and it's on again tonight. I really hope you like it. It's bloody great. We actually also did an after show. So after we have a rose ceremony, if you go to tenplay.com.au and you go online, there's we, we do a little talk show. It's me and the person that just maybe left the rose ceremony and someone else. We have a bit of a chat. It's pretty fantastic. Um, yeah, you can find it on tenplay.com.au right after the rose ceremony, uh, which is fun. But when I am having a tough day, and I'm not alone in doing this, I do it to uh, turn a bit of a corner if I'm uh, – you know, kind of stuck in a moment, I put on a song. I just belt that song out terribly, but I belt that song out. I know I'm not alone in that, but what that does, what I find is that it does kind of enroll all different parts of my brain and parts of my body and kind of suck them out of whatever looping negative spiral they might be stuck in and, and get me into a get me into a cracking track. And this week it was the Black Crows, which was good, but yeah. Um, but that Speaking of which, whatever songs you choose to choose, sometimes I choose musical theatre songs. Um, whatever songs you choose, particularly from the greatest German, uh, whatever songs you choose to choose, that is where my guest today comes in. My guest today is Michael Castle. He's an internationally acclaimed theatre producer. Like when you see uh, The Lion King or Beautiful, the Carol King musical, Michael's the man who put everyone together in the same place to make the show happen. Because when it comes to musicals, hundreds of people didn't suddenly decide to learn the same songs and dance routines and turn up in a theatre in matching costumes to perform them in synchronicity with the thousands of people who suddenly decided to sit there in that theatre at 8pm. 
Uh, no, he's the man that makes all of those things happen and makes it all happen and brings all those people together to make a production happen. And he's been making those moments happen since he was 15 years old. It is an incredible story. Because even if musical theatre is the furthest thing from fun in your mind, Michael's story of how he just saw what he wanted to do and he went after it with a relentless passion, it's just the stuff that I love to soak up. I need to hear stories like this to get reminded of how success can work, to be reminded of how focus can work. Now, you and I might not be having to put on the most ambitious musical theatre productions of our time. We might just be hoping to lose a few kilos, feed ourselves and our family a little healthier, maybe get a little further ahead at work. Whatever goals you and I have, hearing Michael's story, it'll put the fire under your feet to get focused on what you want in life. And you might even do it with a song and a dance routine to make it a moment. Michael's current production, beautiful Carol King musical. It's playing in Melbourne until at least June. You can get tickets at beautifulmusical.com.au. As Michael describes, it's nothing but the hits. It's going to be a good show. Enjoy this conversation with Michael Castle. How are you, Michael? Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Oh, I appreciate it. How are you, man? Yeah, I'm very well. You're a busy human being. Well, we've got a few things spinning along. Yeah, you know, we're juggling is... a few plates, but all good. Juggling plates or spinning plates? Well, no, both. we're both, actually. Yeah, no, we're spinning yeah. plates, juggling, I don't know, whatever. But yeah, juggling and spinning seems to be our life at the moment, I Are think. we having a, a, a return of the spinning plates to the Capitol Theatre? Is this what you're trying to tell me right now? Not <laughs> currently on our uh, repertoire <laughs> list, but actually, good idea. Look out. Well, look, I'm really, I'm really grateful you can be here because, you know, I, I, I do like to talk to people that have figured out a way to, here's a thing that I love to do. Fuck it. I'm just going to go for it. And then made it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody has the make it happen part. And some people have the everything failed about five times before I got to the make it happen part, <laughs> which is okay, in my case. Um, but I would love to, I'd love to, you know, kind of get that out of you. And I, I also, because I am uh, unashamedly uh, a fan of musical theater. Good. I am, we love uh, that too. I'm very grateful. In, in fact, um, your lead of Lame is sat in that very chair. And this is Simon Gleeson. He, he sat right there and he and I had uh, long conversations about how great musical theatre is. Um, so are you, are you from this part of the world? No, I'm from, I grew up down uh, the coast of uh, Sydney, down in Kayama, or Minamara to be exact. Now, for folks who don't know what that's like, what is it's Minamara country. like? It's where the uh, ocean meets the mountains, really. You know, yeah. you've got rural farmland leading up to the mountains to the escarpment. And then you've got these stunning, gorgeous beaches. Yeah. So it's quiet down there. People surf a lot. People work on farms. You know, we lived in suburbia um, in Minamara, which is a lovely place on Minamara River, which means many fish in a learning pool, according to our primary school uh, anthem, which we used to sing. Many fish in a what? In a learning pool. We are many fish in a... You had a primary school anthem. Oh, we did. It was amazing, yeah. And, it, you know, it had a key change in everything. What? Yeah. No, this is Just where the musical theatre began. The Just to lift Absolutely. You know, take it out on a Monday afternoon. <laughs> Monday afternoon. Yeah. All right, so it's a showstopper. It was a showstopper. All Maybe right. that's where it came from. Maybe that was the inspiration. All right. It's not the God, we used to get forced. I was I'm because I'm writing a book at the moment, so I'm just kind of remembering all the stuff about primary school and um I'm old enough in that. We were still in the changeover years of um God Save the Queen and oh, yeah. Australia mm-hmm. Fair. And our um 
Prime Minister, our Premier, our principal was um, a monarchist. Oh. So we were forced to sing God Save the Queen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Would have made the transition. Which is a dirgy, bloody song. <laughs> I couldn't imagine singing that, especially at primary school. It's such a dirty. Yeah, how do you inspire? I don't know. But I was I was down at um in Hobart the other day for a I was still sort of a doctor down there, so I was in and out in the day and I had a couple of hours to kill. So I went to the Mawson's Huts uh, replica. Oh, yeah. They yeah. have a exact replica of, of, of the huts, which is extraordinary. It's a you know, a scientific expedition at the end of the earth at hundred and six years ago, nineteen eleven. And that you know, there's talk of like and we sang a rousing version of God Save the Queen once the hut was completed. <laughs> like, you do. What better way to celebrate? Look at that. Bit of construction. <laughs> with, a, with a song. So, uh, and no key change. Dull as dishwater. Wow. No. The Australian National Anthem, six verses. Yeah. Six. Yeah. Show me one person. Name me one person who knows all six. Uh, Catherine Kemp. She was the really? artistic administrator for the ACO. Well, there you go. Because she, Catherine Kemp, told me that there were six verses. Really? And she knew them all. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, people will struggle when you get to the second verse. But she was the artistic administrator for the ACO, so... Oh, okay. So, you know, kind of inside... Part of the gig. Part of the gig. But second verse, people tend to forget the whole boundless planes to, boundless planes to share part. <laughs> it's true. You know, kind of, kind of uh, you know, go, go across that part without, without noticing. So in your... In your Many fish in your learning pool. Mm. Um, what happened in that community if you didn't surf? I don't know. I mean, we lived opposite a golf course, so people would golf. People played a lot of sports, obviously. Um, but I wasn't really into surfing or sport. That would have been tricky because that's part of the – it looks like, you know, as the Batuta advocate would put it, that's part, part of the coastline where everyone's convinced it's God's country. Yeah, yeah. well, look, you know, it's pretty amazing. It is pretty God's country. I support that. But, yeah, it was kind of um, – there was, you know, not much to do. And I, from an early age, decided I was more interested in entertainment. Yeah. Like, that was always my thing. What was the thing that flicked that switch? I don't know, honestly. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but, you know, my family endured many a family gathering. Any birthday party was an opportunity for me to put on a show from an early age or to, you know, have the family dress up in a fancy frolic we did, which I think was another inspiration from primary school. Um, you know, I used to love things like Young Talent Time and all of that. So, you know, there was – I was – I was being inspired, certainly, and then wanted to, you know, do it in at home. You know, we had a spare block of land next to our house and Dad was forever, you know, building milk crates and putting some planks of wood across the the milk crates and I'd invite the neighbours around and they'd get a mighty good show out of me and my brothers and sister who had to perform, you know, reluctantly because I needed an ensemble. So you were producing even then? Yeah, I suppose I didn't realise I was, but yeah, I suppose I was, you know, charging the neighbours 20 cents. You could go down to the shop afterwards and buy an ice cream. How's your dad putting the stage together? Isn't that nice? Well, it was, you know, he did a good job at it. How old were you at this point? I would have, I mean, four, five, six, Really? Seven. Yeah. Wow. So at 20 cents is a king's ransom. Oh, honestly, I thought I was rich. Yeah, enough enough so, money. Like if, if you're charging every ticket, the 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 economic equivalent of, a, of an ice block. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of cash. It is a lot of cash. That's and right. even now, like if you if you want to go down and get a, a bloody uh, a calippo, 
which would probably be the closest thing to an ice block at this point, that's going to be 250 easily. Yeah. That's a lot of coin for a four-year-old. That's right. That's right. I think it was the only reason why my brothers and sister would be involved because they were getting a cut of this. Oh, and, you right. Know, so early maybe on. Maybe that was the incentive. Early on, you're slicing up the door. Well, I think I had to sort of incentivize them somehow. Otherwise, they were like, no way. You're on your own. So well, you're living in this, you know, idyllic, beautiful country part of Australia, which doesn't really look like the Australia you see on TV too much. When did you first get a concept of, wow, this stage thing could be, you know, it, it does happen bigger? I mean, obviously you mentioned Young Talent Time, which is a TV show that happened on Sunday night. Saturday night. Saturday night. Yeah, Saturday night, because it used to be, I think it was preceded by Magnum, PI. Oh. I remember that because it was as soon as that sort of, credits rolled i'm pretty sure that was indicated that we had to rush in from the backyard or you know usually in the pool in summer and uh take our spot to watch young talent time which was as essentially like young kids singing yeah, just pop songs, singing pop songs. that's right and miming know, or i thought it was all live i don't know i don't know they were pretty amazing well yeah no one mimes Go back on YouTube and have a look, Mike. Oh, you look, can... No, I don't want to spoil that. No? no I've got fond memories. No? Okay. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think that was the, sort of the inspiration. And then I th- thought, well, I, you know, I, at that time I wanted to be a performer. I started, you know, piano lessons because mm. I wanted to, you know, I liked playing the piano. So I took that up when I was in U1. And uh, then mum and dad, I sort of begged them to, I wanted to go and do, there was a local theatre company called the Rue Theatre Company down in Kayama. So I went and joined them and used to do like their drama classes and stuff. And I had fun. I don't think I had any talent, but it was good to be a part of. And then sort of fast forward a couple of years, we did a school production, which was the first school production we did. Which I, I was in, no, primary school. I was in year six at primary school. We did Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. The classic. It, well, it is a classic. Uh, and I played the role of Pharaoh. So, you know, you get a great song and the, you get. I'm going to say the best song in the show. I'd like to say so as well. And you get the encore. So, yeah. you know, that was sort of really appealing to my performer sensibilities. And we did Joseph and then. Harry Ann Miller in 92, which was that year, did Jesus Christ Superstar, the arena tour. And for me, that was a bit of a revelation because not only was it sort of the first properly produced musical that I had seen live, but, you know, I loved obviously the score and, you know, that play that cast album, you know, on repeat. But taking that program home was a bit of an education in how does a show come together. And I, you know, I almost could recite to you, I, I wouldn't try, but, you know, could recite to you Harry and Miller's welcome letter in that program and the staff credits and the creative team credits of who is involved. And it for me it was the dawning, oh, there's a role in these shows called a producer, and that is obviously the person that pulls everything together. Mm. And... I think that was the first time where I thought, okay, actually, this is what I would might like to do, not necessarily be on stage. So I, I wrote to Harry M. Miller. It was, um, it would have been the, I think, toward, probably towards the end of '92. Um, well, so I was 12. in year six. You're eleven. I, I was twelve. I would have been twelve. I turned, yeah, twelve in year six. Um, I wrote to Harry and said, "Dear Harry, I would like to have a job working with you. I'd like to be a producer." And Harry wrote back and said, um, dear Michael, thanks very much and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, I'd suggest you go to high school first. So I, I, by that stage, I had a bit of a rejection war. 
um, in my bedroom. So Harry's letter got stuck up there. I already had a letter from Ray Martin because a few years earlier I decided I wanted to co-host the midday show with him. He thought that was – he was very pleasant. I got a very nice note from Ray who encouraged me to, you know, continue my studies and if I wanted to be a, on television, maybe go and do a journalism degree or, or study further and encouraged me to do work experience. Uh, I had a few other rejection letters from casting directors and bits and pieces, but I took, I loved it. I loved writing the letters and I loved getting the post back, you know, from these people who actually bothered, you know, to write back. And, and usually, you know, it, what was the amazing thing, everybody always gave you a good piece of advice. Um, so yeah, we used to laminate them, get the blue tack, stick it on the rejection letter and off we went. So yes, Harry's was the sort of probably the best letter I received in 92. It's because it's not, it's not like now I get, I'm grateful that people do write to me, but they generally write to me on email, Yes, uh, which is a, a free thing. But if you're, I mean, door takings of milk crate TV, uh, you know, spare lot shows aside, if you want to send a letter, there's paper involved. You've got to go buy a stamp. Mm. You've got to convince someone to either get you down to the post box or, you know, you've got to figure it out. It's, an, it's a mission. Well, it was a mission. And more so because at that stage, we didn't have a computer at home. Mm. I think we got our first computer when I was probably in year seven or year eight and certainly didn't have a printer. So we used to go up to my auntie's house who had a typewriter and, you know, I'd literally have a list of people who I want to write to. And so she'd say, yeah, off you go. And we'd type this letter and send it out to whoever. So that's how, you know, Harry and everybody else got their letter on a typewriter and then, you know, folded it, learned how to fold a letter early on. That was really important. That's sort of being good steed. To, to, but I love to that you were essentially cold calling. I love that you were just like, I'm just, fuck it, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to, Figure out who started this. Okay, there's the bloke's name in the in the program. All right, I'm going to go right to that person. Well, exactly. And then you had to get the uh, the white pages and look them up and hope that their address was there because not everybody listed their postal address or their full address in the white pages. So then you had to make the call to the office to find out what the postal address was. I remember it vividly. <laughs> so, you know, it was a major effort. So they, these people, you know, thank goodness they wrote back and made it worthwhile. Oh, that's super duper. So, so then, so starting of high school, you are mm. go, okay, right? I'm going to be the producer. So, did that end the onstage stage? Well, it got, well, almost. So, started at Karma High School, uh, year seven. Uh, they had a good music program there, and joined the band and stuff. And then, what, it was, what was your instrument? Played piano. So, I joined the concert band mm. to begin with. And then later on played in the stage band and I played in the stage band right through to year 12 and, and stuff. And that was really fun. Like that was good. That you get, was, you get so, that good was sort of, yeah. And that was sort of my, that was ultimately my performance outlet. I yeah. think, you know, that I was played bass of, in the stage band. Concert band, you yeah. couldn't be in stage band unless you were in concert band. Well, I think the same rule applies. So you had to, to go us. through the dirgy 15 beats a minute, way too slow Indiana Jones theme. Oh, Indiana Jones for you. See, we didn't have Indiana Jones. We had Jurassic Park theme. Oh, right. Was, okay. that well, was I'm big. older than you. So, but, <laughs> and because the conductor, and I don't know if this is the same in Koyama, because our conductor was also the clarinet teacher, oh. there was 37 <laughs> clarinets. <laughs> You know, a lot of people play clarinets. Somehow really. the clarinet I mean, got oversupply. Maybe, maybe it was a cheaper entry to the world of the single reed. Yes. Um, than the saxophone, which yeah. is a much more expensive entry to the world of the single reed. Well, and I think they play, they may, if you wanted to play saxophone in our high school, you had to play the clarinet first. I think it was a way yes. of kind of, you know, sort I swear of, it's a racket. 
clarinet makers, <laughs> the whole thing. Is, Look out. It's a fucking racket, I tell you. But yeah, stage band, you get the fun shots. Stage no. band is where you start to, ooh, there's yeah. oh, well, syncopation. Actually, I mean, <laughs> you know, decent, half-decent songs. Yeah, but that would have, like, as a pianist, you would have been like, oh, these are chords I don't play when I'm doing yeah, my AMEB, right. is it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Actually, I had a bit of fun with it. So, no, so, yeah, year seven, joined the band. I think, I forget how it came about, but I decided that at the end of the year there was, you know, school does activities for that final week. And for whatever reason I had on my mind that I didn't want to do any of those activities and there was nothing really musical or appealing for me to be involved in. And so I went and pitched and said, let's go do a school musical at the end of the year. And I figured that would be fun. So when you're onto a good thing, stick with it. And I ended up producing a year seven production of Joseph again. And so everybody wanted to be involved in it. I think just because it was fun. And, you know, thankfully the, um, the teachers agreed and we ended up having our art teacher, Ms. Jones kind of take the reins of it. And yeah, we put on a production of Joseph. So you're 12 auditioning grade 12s. To be in your show? Yeah, we had, yeah, we had every, we had, it was majority of year seven students in it, but then we had, I think, no, the most would have been year 10 in our, mm. in our production. Yeah, so it was fun. It was fun. You know? <laughs> so Put on a show. That's so awesome. That yeah. You that. And what? then we invited all the primary schools along and, you know, so it was, it was good. PR how many, for the how school. many um, performances did you do? I think we maybe did three. Three matinee and two evenings. That's important, though. Yeah. Wow, to get two out in a day, to yeah. get, get enough kids involved to throw a matinee out, that's, yeah. a, that's a big deal. I think it was, I'm sure it was a sellout. No doubt. <laughs> well, that's the trick. Again, it's a racket. If you get a big enough cast, get those door takings, man. Right, bring in the families. <laughs> <laughs> bring it on. Having, having lived the last three years of my life in the uh, Sydney, New South Wales dance dad's mm-hmm. universe, yes. that's, that, you want to get into money? Get into the dance concerts, mate. Oh, man. Get into the dance costumes. Dude, get into the dance costume storage. We're that get- is a business that is honestly... She's outgrown them all, but we can't get rid of them. But at the start of the year, it's like, okay, so we're putting five numbers into Showcase this year. Yeah. Fucking what? Yeah. Each of them, here's the money we need for this. Like That's like $600. I know. For something she will be bigger than by the time it arrives. <laughs> I know. It's a massive effort and a massive cost. Yeah, my daughter's into the dancing at the moment. She's loving it. I do. I do regret having never seen that Christmas spectacular. Well, look, you know, it's it still was... time. Still time to get back over to New York. Yeah. But let's rewind. So let, let's go a little more on the musical tip. So yep. when did you first dip your toe out of the Lloyd Webber world? Because Lloyd Webber's the the JC superstar, the Joseph Technicolor Dreamcoat. That's the kind of you know entry to a lot entry, of people. Yeah, absolutely. But when was the first time you kind of went, you know? Out there, and how long did it take to, to get to Sondheim? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, look, I think kind of once I then discovered musicals, and I was listening to a lot of well, you know, cast recordings. So mm. you know, you're listening to everything from Les Misérables to West Side Story, and and everything in between. So I certainly think from you know young high school years, you know, I had a lot of those yeah. cast recordings and and listening to bits and pieces. I think probably the first. From sort of from high school, you know, seeing the productions that were running in Sydney of the Chorus Line, uh-huh. and then I, you know, Miss Saigon, obviously. Wow, so I, you I folks were, they were like, oh, he's into this. 
let's let's put because it's not cheap. Yeah, no. Let's, let's fork it out. Let's drive all the way up. Yeah, it was a bit of an event. I mean, did a lot with the fam, and then you know, thankfully, did a lot with school as well. So mm. that was good. You know, there was sort of a a focus of bringing the music and and drama. Yeah. kids up you know that was fun take a bus up mm. either a matinee or a night and come music see their students? shows yeah music oh, students so it was good so fun. that was kind of it that was good exposure as well so you know we did a did a lot of the shows with mum and dad because that was a big family expedition uh but then yeah a lot at school as well yeah but it's good when you've got because you don't really want to nerd out on composition stuff with your parents, but when you're other music students, you can yeah, and everybody you appreciates it, and, yeah. and everybody, you know, nine times out of ten, everybody's devoured the cast recording, so knows yeah. it back to front, yeah. And then when you go in to see this live out in you know in front of you, and you've got that whole orchestra yeah. or band or whatever, you know, yeah, you know, that's I still exciting. When, so. I, when I first heard West Side Story, is like this was the fifties, <laughs> shit, <laughs> like just how just the composition, the music yeah. itself, like so I didn't even see, I didn't see the film until years later, yeah, but the music. I've never seen the production of the show, but the music, I remember just musically, it was like, fuck, this is really exciting. Yeah. Really clever, clever, clever composition. Um, I know they're telling a, a story which I, I couldn't possibly relate to, you know, because <laughs> I didn't know what New York was and I didn't know what Puerto Ricans were and I, I didn't know anything. But musically, I was super, yeah. super excited about it. And then once we started getting into, we had a, a music teacher who was, no, actually, I had a friend who um, played in Sweeney Todd. He was a few years ahead of me at school and he, he played in Sweeney Todd and oh, wow. really getting into the the, the super nuanced uh, um, vocalisation, you know, things. Demon Barbara Fleet Street, like all that kind of little, <laughs> little stuff. very well. Wow. I was right into it. Yeah. You know, I was, I was, so, yeah, I, I can kind of re- I, I can relate in many ways. But when you were playing on your piano, were you, were you figuring out songs? Were you getting sheet music from these songs in your spare oh, look, time? Yeah, I think all of my sheet music then sort of became musical theatre yeah. tunes. And I think a lot of my – because I did exams pretty much all the way through to year 12, all of those pieces were How did you go being the, the, the kid in high school who was – really into musical theatre was there bullying or anything going on oh look i think i think yeah you know there was people go oh you know musicals blah 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 into music into drama Mm. you know and when most people are out at the beach or playing football yeah you kind of copped a bit of flack yeah certainly but i kind of there was a bit of a i think i don't know thankful it happened but a bit of a turning point in year nine because I decided, oh, well, I'm just going to go and really produce my own show. And all of a sudden, that became the cool thing or one of the cool things that lots of people in my year wanted to do and be involved in our shows. Maybe it was a means to you know, get out of school and skip school as much as you could, which was part of my mission. And it sort of, I think, showed everybody else, well, okay, you're doing it okay job or a good job at that we'll just sort of leave you alone right. and enjoy your musicals good luck i was uh i was stage crew for the first few years of musicals but yeah i went to an all-boys school and it was the only way that we could get anywhere near girls and so all these guys i remember these guys you know being just being knuckleheads you know yeah um you know going you fucking poofed it and i was like okay you're calling me that but three afternoons a week I go and hang out in very dimly dimly lit corridors behind a, a stage with cute girls from All Hallows um, <laughs> talking about anything but football. Yeah. Uh, 
while you have your head jammed between the two asses of two other guys in a rugby scrum. Um, Good luck, yeah. Okay. Sort that out. On your way, buddy. You know, I mean, I remember yeah. that. I was like, you know, when we did that joke, you know, the year 12 girls would drive me around in their car. I was like, this is the best thing. Like, thank you very much. No bus for me. <laughs> That's right, because when you're in high school in New South Wales, you're old enough to... Right, I grew up in Queensland. Right, It was yeah. a strange, strange, strange world. Um, so you're clearly getting the production thing, like creating your own... If I want to, if I want, if I want to be a part of a show, I want to make a show that I want to see. So that yeah. was early, early, early That was on. early on. Right, and so how early on in high school then, because people start asking, what are you going to do after high school? How early in high school did you start going, well, where am I going to take this? What am I going to do? Uh, probably by about year 10, I think. So I, in year 9, I decided I wanted to produce my own show. Yeah. Um, but sort of left the amateur theatre company and I started doing musical direction for some of their shows, like some of their youth theatre productions, uh, and then decided, oh, I'd like to just go produce my own production. And I decided, this was in January of 95, I decided I'm going to do a Carols by Candlelight concert because I had a couple of reasons for doing that. One was that everybody loves Christmas, so ready-made audience. Two, I thought, oh, well, you know, it's sort of, it's sensible. I can control this. It's not too far-flung. And three, because I decided in January, I thought, well, I'll have 12 months to work out what the hell I need to, to sort out. So... Fast forward 12 months and December rocks around and to an event that I'd hoped we might get 300 people along. We ended up getting, I think it was like 3,000 people along. This is down in Kayama? This is down in Kayama. We took over the Quarry Leisure Centre Sporting Fields and so we had this amazing rock face as our backdrop, which, you know, we uplit, looked specky, and we had a 40-piece orchestra. We had a 100-person mass choir. We you were 14. Of, I, was, I started the year at 14 and then was 15 when the, okay. yeah, the concert rolled Sorry. out. So, no, okay, I'm yeah. just getting out. Okay, yeah. so you have 100 people in the choir. Yeah, okay. 100 people in the choir. We probably had like oh, 20, 30 soloists. And then we had Jesse Spencer from Neighbours. He was our one of our MCs. And, you know, we had um, – I wanted – we called it the – why call it Carols by Candlelight? It needed a big name, right, to show that it was impressive. So to your mention of the Christmas Spectacular, I called it the Can- Carols by Candlelight Christmas Spectacular because I thought that Double just – That just says big, <laughs> yeah. right? Kayama Carols by Candlelight Christmas Spectacular. Lots really of good sounds. That. That's good. Yeah, it's good to good, have that. You know, yeah. Good for advertising. And, you know, we ended up getting – you know, I wrote to the Laura Mercury and got them to sponsor it and they published our program. I think Channel 10 was our sponsor, Southern Cross 10 at the time. We had the local radio station. And so, you know, it sort of came together. And then when I, you know, got to the event and we had all these people there, I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. Like, And it it was a good adrenaline ride, mm. right? I mean, I think it was more stressful for my parents than I because I think they just kept going, oh, my goodness. And, you know, we're also worried – I'm sure about, well, God, this could just completely buck up. And mm. then, you know, how do we support Michael through it? And mm. how do we show our faces in town buying the groceries if it mm. all goes, you know, belly up? But thankfully it didn't. It was great. And for me, that was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So, you know, rolling into year 10, I was like, well, okay, I'll kind of do enough work just to pass and get through. And um, I want to make this something that I do for a career. So I sort of started writing more letters. I, um, you know, wrote to everybody. Did getting... you have your own typewriter then? then? By then I had a computer and a dot matrix printer. Wow. It was amazing. <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah, you know, I was kind of off and, off and running. And you know, I started writing to lots of people trying to get work experience. 
when I did some work experience with Rick Birch, who was doing the Sydney New Year's Eve celebrations and obviously had the appointment to do the Olympic ceremonies. And the second carols actually was a good turning point because I had written to Alan Jones to ask him to come and host because Alan had a, a property down in Jamboree. So I thought, well, you know, local boy, he can come and host the, you know, the community carols. And Alan came and hosted it. We had, you know, a whole lot of other special guest artists um, performing as well. And Alan was sort of gobsmacked, just like, you've put all of this together. And I said, yes, you know, because we had by that, you know, we had in the second year, we went bigger than Ben Hurt because I was like, okay, hold me back. So, you know, we had like massive iMag screens and I think like a four or five camera shoot. Jesus, where'd you like, get the was, budget for that? I just wrote to a lot of sponsors. You know, it was, we didn't spend a lot of money on it. I look back now and wish I could produce shows like we did at the Carols, but you know, it, there was a lot of contra. So a lot of companies, you know, oh, yeah. the marquees or all of the um, rigging that we needed for the yeah. um, staging production and lighting and stuff that was all sponsored by scaffold companies or mm. event companies and, uh, yeah, it all just came together. And Alan was amazed and said, Oh, you know, if you want to be a producer, you should really meet my manager, Harry M. Miller. I was like, well, funny you should mention Harry M. Miller. Let me tell you a story. Anyway, so Alan was like, well, look, look let me, uh, let me provide an introduction. So when I met with Harry, probably in January after, after that carols and Harry said, well, if you want to be a producer, come and do work experience. So from, that year, uh, every school holidays, I'd take the train from Minamara and catch the train to King's Cross and then walk down to the office in Cathedral Street in Woolloomooloo and I'd go to work experience. So I'd answer the phone or type dictation or, you know, photocopy things. And, and Harry was great. He was a good teacher and would let me sit in on telephone conversations and stuff. And he'd be forever putting people on mute and say, you know, explain to me his strategy for negotiating or doing deals and stuff. Wow. So it was really cool. That I was, was like, priceless. I didn't care about not being at the beach or missing my holidays because I was, I loved this. It was kind of what I want to do. And I thought, well, God, the fact that I'm still in high school and learning all this, this is brilliant. Yeah. Um, so I did that all the way through to the end of year 12 uh, at which time Harry offered me a job. So it was kind of like, it was for me, that was the best education, just having the chance to go and do it and, and learn from some really good people and so, and meet some really good people who are either still colleagues or friends or, you know, we work within the industry today. It's so, so exciting though, how that, you know, this 11 year old kid writing a letter to the, to the person, uh, from the program, from the show. And then that it all, you know, you just kept that. You'd, you'd either be amazed or you wouldn't be amazed at all. The amount of people that sat in that chair and when they, the, the description of the constant pressure in a particular direction, it's almost an inevitable yeah. outcome Yeah, every single time. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I when I started learning piano, my piano teacher, I think, brought me in my first or second year as, you know, like a good year, well done for learning your C major scale, this little um, saying, which used to sit on my piano, and it said, if you dream it, you can do it. And it was, you know, Walt Disney, who, you know, later get to have the opportunity to go and work with them. And that's always sort of been my mantra, you know, which is why it was – Never, never felt rejected writing those letters to Harry or to Ray Martin and, and then going forward when I started doing the carols. You know, I sent out far more letters than we got sponsors for, but you just have to keep going. And I think sort of then for, in terms of my career and how it's taken shape, you just have to keep charging at it. And if you love something enough and you're passionate about it and feel have that confidence, then you, 
you know, you sort of, you're not disturbed by the rejections or those kind of pitfalls that you inevitably face. You just have to kind of pick yourself back up and keep going. And it all, I think ultimately it all works out. It takes shape if you keep trying some, trying, uh, working hard enough. Do you still face those rejections now? Yeah, all the time. You know, I mean, the different type of rejections, I think kind of lo- looking at how our business runs now, you know, there's projects that you don't sort of, get appointed to or you know certain things might not work out as well as you know had hoped they would or you know delays or you know whatever it may be and you kind of you know you sort of have to deal with it hopefully learn something from it if you know if it's a a mistake of your own doing and then sort of move on i think otherwise you sort of get so caught up in the assessment of why that, you know, you sort of miss out on the time to go do. And I'm much more of a doer than a, you know, sit back and philosophize as to, you know, what's this all mean? I just want to go charge on and do the next. Speaking of going to do, you, you finish high school, you're, I'm guessing, doing the maths, 18 years old mm-hmm. uh, at the Harry and Miller offices in their old place at King's Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to assume you moved up here? Yeah, I moved up here straight away. All right, so you're 18 years old, you're in the entertainment industry and quite a high-flying part of it at the time. Um, was there any uh, possibility there where you like kind of lost a bit of focus of what you're actually up in Sydney for? Did you kind of no. get sidetracked? No, not at, no, not at all, not really. No, I just, again, was sort of charging, you know, sort of yeah. moved up, moved up the end of January of after I finished high school met well moved in with my now wife Camille that was you know gave our parents something to talk about down the track when we revealed actually no we're not just friends we've you know hooked up but it's all worked out they're very happy now so that was probably the only distraction but it was all about the work that's what I was sort of excited to do what was the biggest lesson from that time or all those phone conversations where Harry would put them on mute that you still carry with you oh there's so many like harry had a lot of sayings all right there's there's a few that i can't tell because i use them to this day and i don't want anybody to know what the motivation is you know real (laughs) secret no look i mean there's a lot the the one i use to this day is keep silent you know harry you know which is a good lesson to learn because um you always want to feel particularly in a negotiation or in anything you always want to fill that void right and Harry was a master at keeping silent and, you know, would just keep people like hanging and they inevitably offer something or speak or give you information. And that's something that I use today because, you know, you kind of, I think particularly in the creative industry, you want to sort of be pally and, and um, be conciliatory, particularly in a negotiation. But, you know, keeping that silence is an art. And if you, you sort of train yourself, and we, a couple of my colleagues talk about it a lot, it inevitably finds you or your clients, your project in a better place, I think. So keep silent, but everybody can forget that if we're about to do a negotiation. <laughs> um, so I'm not about to get the timer out. Um, you know, there's, a, you know, one of the first lessons, you know, which I've talked about a lot, which is why I'm so uh, obsessed with light globes in our office and in our home was I remember sort of the first week and um, I just, you know, rocked in and um, threw a set. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. ...and got to the desk and Harry buzzed me. He was like, Michael, come in here, please. So he went into his office. He said, did you walk through a reception today? I said, yes. And he said, what did you notice? I said, nothing. He said, get back down to reception. I was like, oh, God. So I went down to reception, you know, looked around and thought, oh, God, what is this about? I had no idea. And then thankfully realised that one of the um, reception lamps was not turned on and, you know, I tried to turn it on and the light globe had blown. So I went back to Harry and said, oh, no, that, uh, said, there's a light globe blown. Was that it? And he said, yes. And I couldn't understand why he was obsessed about this. And he said, you know, the lesson there was, Michael, if you want to be a producer, you've got to be focused on every detail. He said, so you can't just waltz into this office and not take note of your surroundings. Um, so, you know, after that, you know, then I'd be coming into the office and if there was a light globe blown in the roof, I'd be getting the ladder out, changing it. And, you know, that irritates me now in my office and at home. You know, like you... Your environment has to be perfect, but it's not about your environment. It's about that attention to detail. And, you know, Harry's lesson was if you're going to be a producer, you've got to be focused on the detail because that's what, you know, you can, you know, attribute to success both creatively and commercially. Even even the, the, the smallest things, like as you're in the last week of previews before you're heading towards opening night, are you still sitting there in the, you know, row, row 13 or wherever the desk is just going, nah, no, nah, that sock, not high enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are. And, you know, kind of working with people now, more recently, you know, Thomas Schumacher, who's the president producer at Disney, and Cameron McIntosh, who, you know, had the fortune of working with on Les Mis and, you know, who continues to work with. I mean, they take it to a whole new level. Like, you know, Cameron's changing things all the way through and it's never to meddle like but it's always it's to get get it right and you know that's why i think these audiences go out going wow that show is amazing and having such a great experience and that's why on stage these shows soar it's because it's you know constantly trying to improve and to to either push a cast or encourage a cast and your creative team to really leave no stone unturned. And that's what makes live theatre and this live entertainment special, I think. But, you know, you can easily just whack something on stage, but I don't think it necessarily resonates visually, orally, otherwise, if you're not pushing it forward. So, uh, so you know, that lesson from Harry, I think all of the, you know, world's best producers, and I've now been able to work with two of them, that's what they bring to the stage. And so I kind of hope that if I can be half what they do in terms of having that attention to detail, then, you know, we're in a pretty good place. When, when I started in the music industry, even the small indie Australian bands were selling enough actual units of uncopyable, at the time, music that they could, they could make money. You can't make money off selling music anymore. So the only way that you can make money as a musician now is either through endorsement deals or through tickets, through your live mm-hmm. shows. And so 
in the time that I've been in the music industry since 1992, seeing the amount of of money that's gone into the live production now and what you get from a live show now versus what you get from a live show 15 years ago is extraordinary. Has that affected how um, musical theatre is presented as well, in your opinion? Oh, look, I think I think certainly sort of if you rewind to the 1980s, and really this is, I think, attributable to Cameron, so it's my reference point. But, you hey, know, let me just, like I said, Cameron McIntosh is sorry. the, uh, it, let me get this right, um, he's the guy that first brought Les Mis yeah, to, so he, to the theatre, which is the most successful musical of all time. The last time I checked, I think it had made, had made $5 billion. Well, interestingly, it's just been surpassed probably about 18 months ago by The Lion, Lion King. King. So all Lion right. King is now number one. Um, yeah, but Lamius didn't have a beloved did, children's no, that's right. or the monster Good of film. Disney marketing no. merchandising behind it. Let's just, you know, let's. it is what it is. No, it is the prince to Disney's Michael Jackson. Absolutely. And, you know, <laughs> it's been running over 30 years yeah. you know, on the West End and countless international productions. But he's the guy that first initiated the production and first brought it out there. Yeah, yeah, brought it to the stage in London and then quickly rolled it out around the world with Australia being one of the most incredible productions, which I think just celebrated its 30th anniversary last week. So, so, sorry, I cut you off there. So, in the 80s, you're talking about what Cameron... So, sorry. Did. So, yeah. So, Cameron, uh, you know, he's sort of, I think, renowned for being, you know, the producer of these big, spectacular productions and, and really kind of investing in the production values, you know, be that the music, the, the lighting, the sound, the, the, des- the set design, the costume design. Um, so, I think there's... Certainly since then, there's, you know, there's been the scale of musical theatre productions that absolutely deliver Hmm. in terms of their theatricality on stage as big scale productions. I think probably, yes, the music industry has sort of caught up a little bit with that because I think both to, to put on the show, basically, mm. you know, and to, and to keep those punches coming through the door. I would suggest that the music, music theatre business was ahead of them. Oh, a absolutely. Bit. Yeah. I mean, you look, even you look back at, um, like, Bowie's uh, 80s stuff, like the, <laughs> the Little Glass Spider tour and, and, and even before that, all of his stage direction, all that stuff was all Broadway people. Mm. They were all, all Broadway designers, all that stuff came I from I think there. it's interesting. A lot of broad, like a lot of Broadway directors, choreographers, designers do make that, you know, foray into the concert world because they mm. know how to put on a show. And I think more so now, you know, you go and see these big concert tours. They're not just a show. They also have a narrative. You know, they, they find a way to sort of weave the story together, mm. you know, using the, the songs. And that's usually sort of that Broadway team or, you know, mm. team, musical theatre team. And to do team. it at scale and do it with yeah. something that won't break and do it with something that can live in a road case and come back out of the road exactly. case and be put together by someone who might not have put it together before that's and, right. and work. And be consistent night after night after yeah. night. Yeah. And, you know, that's the other thing. It's not just a piece of set. It's a piece of something that has to come on. Probably might only be for 30 seconds of one chorus of one song, but it's the thing that everyone goes, oh, my God, and they exactly. the Look at us. Oh, fuck. <laughs> exactly. Know, it's got to be it, – and, 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 Having, I've had the benefit of, of living, uh, I lived in the States for quite a while, I lived there for 10 years, and I was lucky enough to have seen, uh, very grateful to have seen some productions on, on Broadway. And just in the time that I was there, I mean, if I would just totally nerd out on the level of um, automation involved in the set design, which is, you know, I think Cameron McIntosh, if I'm not mistaken, like he had a, a revolving stage as a part of that first yeah, which was production, which was my big mind. revolution. No, no, yeah, hey, see right. what you did there? Ba-boom. See, that's a double hander. <laughs> yeah. Hey. On it today. <laughs> 
No one had ever done anything like that. No, that's right. Uh, in, in musical theatre, when you've got like 80 people on stage and all of a sudden you're 100 kilometres away in, in, in the story. Like, yeah. how are we going to show that without breaking the rhythm of the show? But now watching the automation of, of things going on, and, and I'm sure you would have faced this. And in fact, when I saw Les Mis at, at Capital Theatre, I'm like, mm. Look at that. That's like a four-ton piece of something flying across the stage. There's 20 people who are in the middle of singing a song and they'll casually just choreograph their way out of the way as this thing comes flying across the stage I know, right? and hopefully not clean them up. I know. I mean, the, you know, the moving pieces of these shows nowadays, you know, the, I mean, Les Mis was because you've got the barricade that's moving on and, you know, you've got these flies coming in and out. We've got it on Beautiful at the moment. You know, there's the, the piano Tracks the on uh, the, the beautiful the Carol yeah. King musical. You know, there's you've got both scenic elements of you know multiple levels that are moving on and off, and you've got this piano that moves on, twirls around, moves off in every which direction. I mean, that that's a choreography unto its own, and takes a great deal of programming and preparation, and then rehearsal because you don't want to be in the way as these set pieces yeah. are moving on and off that stage. So in, in my time in, in the States, I was also, I, I was fortunate to have a sideline view of someone, uh, actually a group of people that I knew actually try and, and get a show up. Mm-hmm. And I started to learn about, for every show that opens, obviously, as we mentioned before, there's a thousand that got pitched and, you know, completely written scores and, yep. and, and everything and, and demos and people that, you know, done shows in, in a, a rehearsal studios for investors and stuff like that. But I heard the famous line, and I'm not sure it's a famous line you've heard it before. Um, there's a thing about Broadway. You can't make a living, but you can make a killing. Mm. This idea that the show, um, it's either going to open and close within six weeks or it'll just stay open until the theatre is like, oh, we're going to have to move you out of the way because the cat is going something, back. Yeah, <laughs> in line, quick, get out when you make some money. So we talked about the things that have gone really well for you. So let's talk about... Was, is there a show that you put all this work and all this effort into and everything, 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 and, it's, and, it, and it still didn't work? Look, we have, touch wood, and thankfully to date, we really haven't had something that's been a disaster or yeah. been a huge disappointment, and that's being genuine. I mean, we will be the first producer uh, to, to not have experienced a failure if, you know, we can kind of, if I can survive this career and, and not have a mark. That will happen. That I know that mm. is in our future. You know, you have certain things that don't perform as well as you would, would expect. Does, and, you know, I would, you know, we had a great production of Singing in the Rain, um, which we toured and co-produced with some partners a couple of years, a year before last. And, you know, it's a good title. It was a very well received production in the UK. You know, brilliant creative team. You know, kind of very con- contemporary production values, and a really sensational cast here in Australia um, with uh, Gretel Scarlett, uh, particularly leading the leading the Australian company. But it just didn't really fire. You know, it's all well. You know, it's not okay. Sorry, um, and you know, sort of plotted along throughout its tour. But did it really soar to sort of the dizzying heights that you know we had hoped it would, or had maybe anticipated it would? No. Um, so that was a that was financially a disappointment. It wasn't artistically a disappointment because the show was still brilliant and we had this great cast and the audiences loved it. But would we have liked more people through the door? Yes. Would we have liked uh, the you know the box office sales to be to be greater? Yes. Um, so so far, that's probably you know the, our first taste at having something that doesn't quite soar as you would hope it would. So how do you keep everyone 
you know, when you've when you've got a cast of people there, they're living in a service department in in Perth, they're away from their family and friends and and kids, they miss everybody, and they stand out there and they see the people are only like halfway down the theatre. How do you keep your cast, you know, buoyed? You, I think you just have to be honest with them, yeah. and I sort of have this the first day of rehearsals when we bring a new company together, and you know, we've only. I've only been independently producing now for the past five years or coming up to five years. And the first day of rehearsals when we bring the cast together, I said to them, look, you know, working for us might be a little bit different to other producers. And, you know, I can't speak about how, you know, others manage their companies or uh, are involved, but I'm very hands-on. And I said, so a couple of things you need to know is one, you're going to see me in the theater a lot. Now, you know, should any of you go off, there was that burning ambition at you know the age of seven to be a performer. I could probably go on and, and do your role, but that's not why I'm there. But I want to be in the theatre because that's what I love and that's I want to be amongst it. Two, we're very transparent. So if sales aren't going well or if you know we're talking about closing early or, or whatever it may be, then you'll be the first people to know about it. And I think certainly what I take great pride in is a lot of our companies do say just how engaged – I am and in turn my team are in these shows. And I think that really helps because when you are in that situation where it's not quite as full of a, of a house as you might hope mm. or, you know, there's some concerns about how something might be faring, to actually be on the front foot and to actually, I think, for a company to know that the person who is bringing this kind of, you know, diverse group of people together is there with you, I think sort of helps it, you know, it doesn't make it easy. You're still going out on that stage and still performing maybe to a half empty house. But I think provided you know that you're, you as a show, you as a company are being well taken care of, that you artistically are performing the best show possible. And that's why, you know, what's really important to me is that we have, you know, a really amazing local creative teams who keep these shows in check. We don't, it's not sort of a set and forget. And I don't think any producer really would, would produce that way. But, you know, certainly for long running shows, they can tend to sort of just sort of drift a little bit. Mm. And I think, you know, in these scale of shows that we're producing here in Australia, they're, they're so big and they've got so many different disciplines involved. Uh, if you're not kind of keeping these shows artistically tight, then they, they can drift very quickly. And as soon as you do that, then you're not delivering on your sort of obligations to the rights holders and that original creative team who have, you know, spent a labor of love, usually over a number of years to kind of originate what's on stage. But you're also not delivering to your audience. And I think the, the companies recognize that, which is why then when you do have times which are a little bit tougher, they kind of sort of um, all pull together and say, you know what, while we might not have as many people in the theater, we're actually presenting a show that we're all very proud of. And whether you've got one person in the theatre or 2,000 people in the theatre, you know, we're proud to be involved in the show. Um, it's interesting that you talk about that because particularly when you bring it over, over a big show, um, you, there is that 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid that you were in the crowd that knows every note of the cast recording. Yeah, that's all right? so true. And they have dreamed about what it's going to be like when they go mm. and – you know, say they get there on uh, the Saturday matinee at two and, ladies and gentlemen, the part of Jean Valjean will be played tonight by Osher Ginsburg. You're like, hang on the fuck, that's not, the, that's not Simon. You yeah, know, and then, right. you know, you don't, you want to give those people as close to, 
you don't want to go to a different Macca's and taste a different Big Mac. No, exactly. You want to taste want what you want. That's what you want. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, it's whether, that's right. Whether it's a Saturday matinee, a Wednesday matinee, yeah. a Thursday evening or a Saturday evening, that show has to be the same. And, you know, particularly with these shows that we are producing here, a Les Mis, a mm. Beautiful, a Kinky Boots, whatever, you know, a lot of people nowadays are also traveling. So they've seen those shows in the West End or on Broadway. Australia has to be better, I think, than all of them. And the only reason it has to be as good, but it has to be better because, you know, we're the ones doing it. We've got phenomenal talents here. And, you know, what I like hearing is that people come out of our shows going, wow, I'd seen blah, blah show overseas. And, you know, this is the best. I can't believe how great it is. Um, and, you know, that's our obligation. That's our obligation to the material. That's our obligation to our audiences mm. is to make sure that 150% every performance we're delivering on that production. Are you involved in any point now of, you know, the early inception of the creation of shows? Not yet. It's something on my list of things to do. I would love to kind of roll up our sleeves and, you know, start with a blank piece of paper and say, okay, let's go create something. Nick Kelly, the musical. Look out. It's already been done. Someone's already (laughs) taken that idea. They just had a workshop production last year, which is apparently very good. Oh, really? Yeah, look out. That's uh, okay, so well, that, that that's the thing. Like but, the stages, I was I was lucky enough to be in. Um, I was at the ABC um, doing this podcast uh, project for them on on mental health, and the uh, the Mamma Mia cast was rehearsing in yeah. the studios there on the, on the third floor. And I was you just looking, get that nice echo in that yeah, reception as you yeah, quite yeah. that. But I remember looking. I was looking down and going, "Oh, look at that man! Uh, they're there. It's like day one. Yeah. It's on. Yeah, they, they made it. You know, they haven't like opening night is months away. That's right. But look at you." You've, you've got these 60 people in the room. Yeah. You know, everyone's got there. Everyone's got sheet music. I could see from where I was, like, wow, it's really full. And I, I, I was lucky enough to have known the, the drummer. Yeah. Um, I was like, wow, look at you. You, you, you bloody made it. Yeah. Even this far is well, an Well, that's the thing. You know, you kind of look at, at the sort of the, the timing of these. You know, the, we start talking about the shows, you know, at least two years out in mm. terms of pulling it together. And so the effort, particularly the cast, you know, the that journey for that cast who turn up on that first day of rehearsals, you know, they've been auditioning probably at least – six to 12 months in advance of turning up on that first day of rehearsals to to go and learn the show mm. by the time they've done the rounds of auditions and then waited that time and had costume fittings and stuff. So really the big investment. So by the time you actually come together, you know, there's been a whole commitment from, mm. you know, a whole range of people to pull that show together. It's interesting though, as a, as a musician and as a singer, it is one of the Probably might be one of the only gigs like outside because no one doesn't really really covers bands anymore. No, yeah. Like as a way to make a living, it's probably the last thing left in in, the, in Australia that you could do. Well, and there's been I think you know just Those fucking clarinet players are getting uh, paid, that, man. That's right. Look out! <laughs> Look out! I need to go and check actually all of our orchestras. How many clarinet players we've got in each pit? Probably too many. Uh, too many, uh, maybe. Um, but, but I think that's great too, mm. though, to see that crossover. And, you know, we're, you're seeing it sort of, I think, more and more people kind of making that transition from kind of the pop rock world into musical theatre. And I think it's a good thing. It brings new, you know, potentially brings new audiences in because, you know, if you're a fan of somebody's music or performances and then see them in this new environment, I mean, from our perspective, it's great because, you know, I think it's about saying, you know, music, you know there's a way for musical theatre to appeal to everybody. You know, mm. you may not be a fan of West Side Story or 
My Fair Lady might not be to your taste or Les Mis, but, you know, there's such a variety, such diversity in terms of how these shows are being created, their style of music, the way they're taught on stage. Yeah. Um, it, you know, to your point, to our discussion earlier, you know, a lot of these shows are kind of at a scale now like a big, you know, concert tour. Yeah. I, I wish it's a few years back now, maybe 10 years maybe, I would have I would have loved to have seen like diehard Skid Row fans turning up to see Sebastian Bach play in Phantom of the Opera. They're like wondering right. what the fuck was going on. <laughs> Where are we and what are we doing yeah, here? What is, what is this? What, what do those bells mean? <laughs> what do we mean? We've got to go back yeah, out? That's right. Oh, you just got here. <laughs> well, I'm stuck to my seat, so I can't leave. <laughs> um, so how are our, in a, as a country, how are our... Um, you know, because no one just arrives a fully formed musical theatre performer. How is how is our pathway to getting into your production? How is our um, either high school or or you know tertiary you know development towards that? Well, I think it's quite exceptional here in Australia. I think we're quite lucky. I mean, we've got some really. I mean, obviously, a lot of people who you know make this their career have been you know doing what our daughters are doing. You know, you start off in dancing or drama school or music, and so people tend to study and train and, and become very good. Yeah, but at you a know as age. well as I do that, and I've seen it like through the auditions of Idol. Uh, we had to like on an average, we had to audition maybe a thousand to fifteen hundred to get each one of our top ten or top yeah, twelve. Right. All right. So there's a Difference between incredible and exceptional. Well, this is, thankfully for us maybe, this is where our audition process for our musicals varies quite substantially to, to the other because we aren't going out to, to the masses. Yeah. Um, you know, we when we release a brief, it goes to agents and, you know, we will, you know, take uh, – even we will see people who aren't represented, but they need to have trained. You yeah. know, predominantly the, the majority of people we see have, have trained – at a WAPA or a NIDA or the VCA or the Queensland Conservatorium or, you know, they've studied at Brent Street, et cetera. So, you know, these are people who are committed to yeah. kind of honing their craft. So by the time we, we see them, they, you know, they really are first rate. And what always is exciting to hear, though, it's the creative teams are sometimes not apprehensive, but, you know, question when we start talking about a project, oh, are we going to be able to fill all these roles? And, you know, we had such a hard time casting the show on Broadway or the West End, and now we're coming to Australia. But, you know, the, as we all know, the talent here in Australia is phenomenal. And it only takes, usually it's that after that first day of auditions with an international creative team. And, you know, they sit back and go, wow, you know, we've seen so many great people. And I think it's because there's a, there's a lot of interest in this part of the business and there's not a whole lot of opportunities. You know, we're limited by population, by demographics, by theatres, you know, in terms of the number of, you know, in our part of the business, the number of musicals that are sort of on these stages at any one time. And so people really work hard to secure these roles. And so you end up with, you know, these sensational casts. You know, it was Cameron McIntosh who proclaimed when Les Mis opened that he thought it was the best company of Les Mis, you know, he'd assembled. And, you know, this is almost 30 years after. And look, it might have been a really great press quote, but I'll own it and I'll keep repeating it. Um, but, you know, it's true. And, you know, we've, you know, we had the same with Jerry Mitchell, who's the director choreographer of Kinky Boots, who's just with us um, over the past 12 months. And, you know, he and Cindy Lauper took to the stage. And, you know, it's heartfelt. These aren't throwaway lines. But saying, you know, what you guys are delivering here is amazing. You know, the talent is phenomenal. You know, we have we do have particularly good dancers here in Australia, you know, very contemporary and very technically competent performers. You know, you've got great 
great singers, great actors. It's, um, it's always nice going through that audition process because you just see so many great talent. And, you know, the challenge obviously also is, you know, when you're putting these musicals together, you need people who can, you know, if it's a musical, do all three, act, sing, dance. Um, but then, you know, the challenge becomes who covers who and, you know, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle and obviously can't give a role to everybody. But, you know, I think touch wood, there's not been a, a, a point in time where we've gone, oh, gee, there's no way we can cast this show in Australia. You know, we've had to, Kinky Boots was an example. We, we brought in uh, Callum Francis from the UK who was really, I think, amazing in the role of Lola. We, we, we brought him in because for, for that role, which was written for an African-American man, we could not find somebody who could deliver that performance eight times a week on stage. And so, yes, we did have to sort of look beyond our own talent pool here in Australia to, to cast it. But, you know, my intention always is to, you know, cast locally. You want to do that. You want to see Australian talent on stage. Um, and I think we've got plenty of it. You mentioned that, and uh, I remember again during the idol auditions. I remember, you know, you'd you'd hear people go, "Oh, I'm tired. I can't do this." And I think it was it was an American Idol winner. Fantasia was her name. She got cast as a lead. It might have been Dreamgirls or something. Might have been. Was it Dreamgirls or was it, um, Color Purple? That might be it. But I remember like reading in Variety, not long after it opened, that she was missing most of the nights. Because eight times a week for two and a half, three hours, you are singing and dancing and just putting it out there for 1,500, 2,000 people as good as you've ever done it in your life eight times a week. Yeah. Not once. You're not like doing one night at Wembley and that's it, I'm out. You're doing that and it is you have to be so fit. The, you have to be in like extraordinary shape yeah. vocally. Like yeah. and you can't just do a couple of weeks of rehearsal to get that. It's like years and years of stamina to That's get right. to that point. So you can – because there's no point in you opening strong and then, you know, the show's killing it and then two months later you're like, I've got nodules. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> got nothing else to give. Well, that's right. And, I mean, you know, they really are sort of the most disciplined athletes, you yeah. know, these performers getting up on that stage and delivering it. And it's eight times a week and the majority of our shows fall over uh, – three-day period you know we're doing five shows typically friday through to sunday so you got for friday night double show saturday double show sunday and you know that sunday evening performance has to be as strong as a friday which has to be as strong as you know your first performance of the week yeah. on a tuesday you know you can't just phone it in and when you're when you're casting you're you're obviously looking for okay right yeah you've got the other triple threat sing dance act but do you have the stamina? Can can we still run this in two years? Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. so that's the consideration that you take, and you sort of, you know, the music director, particularly kind of for those singers, is a lot, has a big voice to play in that part because you know they're going to want to make sure that yes, you can sing it once and it's great in the room in this sort of mm. you know audition uh, space, but can you actually get up there and do it? You know, eight times a week, three yeah. weeks later. Uh, and also, you know, depending on the roles, that's where you kind of, it is interesting to look at kind of what that person's experience has been, you know, have they done it before? Yeah. Because, you know, it would be a challenge. I think there's always a first, but Simon Gleason obviously came to us and played the most phenomenal Valjean. Now he had built up a lot of stamina to be able to do that. And he knew what it took to prepare it. You know, he, that was sort of an 18 month program that he put himself through knowing just how taxing it was going to be on his 
body on him, on himself physically and emotionally to deliver the that. biggest the biggest note of the night in the first two minutes of the show. Yeah, it's like you know, brace yourself. It's a humongous note. Uh, yeah, you know, and that what when you you don't have the whole show to get warmed up for that. So that means you have to start your day that many hours earlier. No, this is so your voice is there by the time that curtain goes up, and when he's there in the middle of the stage and he hits that fucking exactly. massive note. And you can't compromise on that. No. You know, that's, you know, that's the show and that's the audience expectation. You yeah. better deliver it. Yeah. It, so when – was there any point where you're like, man, I don't know if you realise this, but you're talking to the, the king of the Kayama Christmas Carol Super Spectacular <laughs> right here. I'm going to Broadway. Was there any point where you're like, I'm going to the States. I'm going to cr- crack this out. Uh no, look, I always sort of had a fascination with New York, like just as a city, like who doesn't? Broad- I suppose Broadway was not so much of a thing for me, you know, kind of admired it and think it's exciting, but I never, it was not sort of I'm moving to Broadway and I'm going to be a Broadway producer. But through my work at Disney, I, so I, you know, a couple of years after um, I started with Harry, uh, Disney decided to set up their own, um, operation here in Australia and they hired a good friend, a good mentor of mine who was working for Harry at the time, who was Harry's MD, uh, James Thane, to go and set up their division here in Australia. And thankfully, James hired me to go and be his assistant. So I started working for Disney uh, in 2002 out of putting Lion King on stage. And then thankfully kind of, you know, some, you know, my position evolved over time and it uh, got to 2005 and I was sent on a bit of an expedition over to Shanghai to see if we could find a way to make Lion King happen in Shanghai for the company. I ended up moving over to Shanghai and spending about five months there and we opened the show. We took uh, chartered three 747s. We closed the Australian production early and took 156 Aussies, uh, predominantly Aussies, up to Shanghai and ran the show there. And on the back of that, Tom Schumacher, who's our boss at Disney, said, look, do you want to move to New York and come and uh, work on our international production? So I did get to pack up my bags. Right. and uh, My wife Camille and I moved over there and, yeah, lived in New York. I didn't work on Broadway shows. I was responsible for anything outside of the mm. US or the UK, but it kind of gave me the Broadway fix. Yeah. You know, certainly you got to go and see the, you know, every show yeah. at any second How of the day. I uh, lived in New York for five years. Brilliant. So it was great. So, um, you know, for me, it, it ticked two boxes. One was getting to have that New York experience. Yeah. Uh, well, a couple of boxes, actually. Two was kind of, you know, working for Disney, which was yeah. kind of the most um, wonderful experience. And then three, because of doing these international shows, I got to travel a lot. So, mm. you know, my job was, uh, you know, my first project or production was producing The Lion King down in South Africa. And so I went and lived down in South Africa in Johannesburg for six months. And, you know, then I was doing uh, Beauty and the Beast on Buenos Aires or Aida in Seoul. So um, I got to see a lot of the world at the same time as producing these shows and, and living in New York, which was great. So what brought you back to Australia? Uh, my daughter was born. She was born over in the States. And, you know, we started sort of wondering whether we wanted to raise her in New York or bring her back to Australia. And, you know, we were living in a really nice apartment which was great for a couple but as soon as you have a baby and you know you're limited on space we started going well you know should we be back in australia and she's the first grandchild on both sides 
And so, you know, the grandparents are like, I would really like to see her. Yeah. And then I was approached to join an Australian company called Global Creatures, uh, which is, uh, had huge success at the time with Walking with Dinosaurs, a big arena production. And they were developing Strictly Borum as a musical and had the rights to Moulin Rouge and Muriel's Wedding, which is just open the other week here. And so they said, look, you know, would you come and work on our international business and creative affairs, which was sort of for me a bit of a replica of what I ended up doing at Disney. So I never thought I would leave Disney. I was sort of at that time where I thought, oh, well, we'll just be here forever. Yet I thought, well, this is such a good opportunity to work for an Australian company, work on new titles and sort of the, the very best in the world with the very best people. And hopefully have a long-term future in the theatre industry. So we moved back and, you know, started doing the job and, and working with the team and the projects there. But then I, you know, it was approached about doing Les Miserables. And for me, that was kind of the, that was the big turning point because I thought, well, okay, now this is absolutely sort of everything coming together because it, for me, gives me the opportunity to work with Cameron McIntosh and, you know, being the theatre geek that doesn't get any better than that. He's the Steven Spielberg of, brought, yeah, uh, of absolutely. musicals. He's absolutely. the guy that first took it blockbuster. Uh, absolutely. He, he, I mean, yes, Jesus Christ Superstar was humongous, but when it comes to, you know, tea towels, T-shirts, you name it, you know, five, six billion dollars, whatever it was, out of nothing, they yeah. made it. Yeah. You know. And, and creating what I think, you know, sort of, you know, what Cameron has done incredibly well is, you know, take these shows that have, as you said earlier, have not been, what, you know, obviously Lemmy's is based on Victor Hugo's novel, but it doesn't have, there was no huge recognition. There wasn't a film behind it or, you know, a a massive release to support it. So, you know, he, he invested in these stories and realized that this story is great to be told on stage and then found a way through the, you know, supporting that creative team to, to to bring it to life. So for me, that was the opportunity to, to leap out on my own and sort of you know, hang out the shingle, as they say, and try and be a producer. Um, and then off we went. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm incredibly happy. Yeah, I mean, it's, I love it. I, I, love, I love producing. I love, I love kind of making it up. I like no two days are the same. I love kind of if tomorrow we decide let's go and do or look at this project, we can go do that. So I like that uh, flexibility, the entrepreneurialism of it I like. Um, I like work, working on great projects and, you know, because, you know, thankfully I get to pick and choose what we do. So, you know, you're only going to, I think, produce a show that you're passionate about. Um, and so, so far I've had the opportunity to work on shows that I really want to be involved in. Um, and we've got an incredible team and you get to work with great people and, and now we're, you know, able to expand and we're not just producing our shows here in Australia, but we're starting to produce shows internationally on tour. So, you know, last year we took Les Miserables, uh, to Manila and Singapore and then was the first major musical to ever play in Dubai at the Dubai Opera House. And then next March, we opened the first ever international tour of The Lion King. And that opens again in Manila, where we've just set box office records. But ultimately, that will tour throughout Asia and then hopefully up to the Nordics and even down to South America. So that's exciting to, to be involved in, in the business where you can be really proud of bringing great shows to Australia. And, you know, that's kind of our focus. But then to start broadening our horizons and working internationally as well. It's, it's fun. Just hearing you talk about it, I mean, because 
I have an awareness of the scale of these things. You're essentially producing a feature film every day, all right? The amount of people, the amount of things that have to go right. (laughs) The amount of things that could go wrong. (laughs) Every day. How do you deal with the stress of it? You kind of just have to roll with it. I think, you know, you sort of have to, you have to roll with, you know, cause there's a lot of stuff that, you know, you, that not everything runs perfectly. And so you have to then work out how do you fix it and how do you prioritize what needs your attention? I think. And, you know, you also, I mean, also you need to have really smart, smart people around you to kind of deal with it. And so, you know, in the way we've created sort of our team, we've got wonderful people who are focused on those productions and they worry about those shows 24-7. You know, an associate producer on Beautiful wakes up this morning, thinks about Beautiful and goes to sleep thinking about Beautiful. And so what that allows me to do is to come in and kind of be a part of it and shake it up and, you know, we have sort of, you know, either creative ideas or marketing ideas. Um, but there's a team on it that's, you know, looking after it in my office day to day and same for Lion King and everything else we're doing. And yeah, it can get stressful. And sometimes you go, oh God, you know, why bother? We're just doing a show. And partly the, the way to, for me to deal with it is at the end of the day, while it's incredibly important, it is just a show. So we can't, while well, we've got to take care of it and that's my obligation to the rights holders and everybody, you can't beat yourself up too much about it, you know. And when things go wrong, it's usually because it's not in your control. You know, it would be devastating if you thought, well, I've personally destroyed this or my team or – but nobody's ever going to, you know, go out and be malicious and go, yeah. how can we screw up Kinky Boots today? So I think you just, you know, provided you just bring that energy and that focus on it and, and, you know, every, you know, everything we do, we're always trying to do it the very best. You know, that pays off, I think. Um, so when you do sort of have these little dramas that, you know, inevitably crop up day to day, you're able to sort of deal with them with a clear head, hopefully bat it away and bring on the next one. When I am, I'm a part of a, a, of a production and we've just done five or six weeks away. Um, uh, which is kind of fun, as you know, when you're on tour, you're like, look, I'm not with the people I love, you know, with all my heart, but I'm here. Yeah. We may as well do a great job because, you know, we're living in this, it's not my home. I'm surrounded by other people's stuff. I'm living out of a suitcase. May as well make it great. Um, for me, what, what I do comes down to, I mean, yes, I love making, um, this show, The Batch, and it, and it was the same with Idol. For me, what it comes down to is I give people who might have otherwise never had something to talk about something to talk about. Absolutely. So that's that's why I do my job, all right? Yes, people fall in love, people become stars, whatever it is, the show that I'm working on, but people that, did you watch this show last night? No, 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 they might not, they now have a way to, and in, in, in my weird way, I'm helping our culture come together a little more, as strange as me. What does it come down to for you? I... What comes down to me, I take no greater joy than standing at the back of the theatre or in the wings, which I try and do at least once or twice a week when the shows are here in Sydney and I'm in town, and just watching the reaction of that audience to what's on stage. You know, I, I certainly take tremendous pride in, you know, that cast and what they're delivering. And, you know, that's, you know, that's where the, the special part of what we do comes together. But then seeing how that translates to that audience who, you know, I think about, I watch them as I walk into the theatre. You know, this person, maybe 12 months ago when we put it on sale, was a huge 
Carol King fan, for instance, and rushed out and brought their ticket and then caught up their friend and said, look, come with me. And in 12 months time, we're going to go to the Sydney Lyric Theatre. And then I think about, well, you know, what did they do to get there? You know, there's a massive commitment that people make to come and see these shows. And, you know, I think about my experience, you know, these were an event. These, you know, theatrical productions were an event to go to. And then to, to witness them have that experience, have that joy, ha- be moved, be entertained, and, you know, hopefully at the end to kind of see, watch how they react to the performers on stage. That's the kick I get to go, wow, okay. A passion that we have for this, this business has paid off. A passion that we had for this show and this story has paid off and that people have enjoyed what's on stage as much as I've enjoyed pulling that together. That's my buzz. You know, that's a kick. And, you know, what I say to the team, um, you know, in the office, I have the opportunity to go and see the show a lot. And when the shows are touring, I'll go once a week and be at Brisbane or Melbourne, go and see the show. But, you know, when you're working in our team and you may be working in the accounts department, for instance, so all you know of Kinky Boots is the, the invoices going back and forth. Say, so go and stand at the back of the theatre once a week because when that Excel spreadsheet is giving you a headache and you want to scream at the system, go and stand in that theatre and realise kind of what you're allowing to kind of create. And there's for me and I think for our team, there's no greater joy in that. So great, man. I'm so glad you came today. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for having me. Also, I'm just going to shoot your photo real quick, okay? Sure. Cool. Thanks, man. That was Michael Castle, an inspirational man to say the very least. Michael's current production, beautiful Carol King musical. You can see it in Melbourne. I think it'll be touring further around after that. Beautifulmusical.com.au if you want to get tickets to see where it's playing near you. Big thanks to my audio producer this week, Andy Marr. Of course, Hayley Van Spagna, who made me and Michael manage to be in the same breathing space at the same time, which is no mean feat. Thank you, Hayley. And of course, to Toehider for the music this week and a few little extra bits and pieces. Toehider, always. And to you, thank you for listening because without you, I don't get to make a show. If you do like this show, the most wonderful thing you can do for me is to tell another person. That would be it. If you like this show, just share it with someone, Twitter, Facebook, say, hey, person that I just met on the bus, here, look at this podcast I'm listening to. You should listen to it. It's great. Or maybe not, whatever you do. That would be really helpful. Have a fantastic week. I'll see you. Have a great Easter. Oh, yeah. It's my birthday on Thursday, so happy birthday if it's your birthday on Thursday. And, um, yeah, I'll talk to you next week. Until we talk next time, sleep well, dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.